everybody, welcome to a very special episode of Defenders Dialogue with Carr and Adam. It's episode 28. I'm Adam Phillips, president of UntoldStoriesMarketing.com, and with me is... Carr D'Angelo, owner of Earth 2 Comics in Sherman Oaks and Northridge, California. All right. And uh, yeah, it's just after Christmas and we're recording this special episode that I'm calling... You ready for it? Sure. Doc Foom! (laughs) (laughs) Could you call it? Exactly. It's a natural, I know, because we're going to be talking today about Foom number 19, Special Defenders issue. Yeah, so it might be a little bit quicker than our usual episode, but we got some stuff to talk about. Less plot Uh, twists and turns. Yeah, less less of that, more of some other fun stuff. So uh, we're going to talk a little about FOOM in general before we get into the specifics um, on this issue, this particular issue. Oh, my, my uh, just as a sideline, my, um, Go for it. my pitch for the title in, a, in 70s fashion was going to be going to FOOM, FOOM, FOOMA, FOOM. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah, I like it. But Doc FOOM is, you can't argue with that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's too good, really. So FOOM, for those who don't know, stands for Friends of Old Marvel. And of Ol. course, Ol, excuse me, Ol. With the apostrophe. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and um, obviously a takeoff on, you know, a frequently used sound effect in the comics as well. But it's such a funny title. I, I often actually wonder, like, who came up with the concept of FOOM itself? I mean, we know it started in 1973. It's quarterly. For most of the issues, it was like two colors, so it looks like a fanzine, but it was, you know, an official Marvel publication, and it would give you the sort of behind the scenes on what was coming up. And, uh, Carr, you were making an excellent point before about why they might have launched this kind of thing. Well, I think there were a lot of fanzines at the time, particularly like the comic book, or the comic book reader, the comic book reader, no, the comic reader. Yes. Famously edited at one point by uh, Paul Levitz where there were these newsines. I mean, Comic Reader did a great job of kind of collecting all the data from Marvel and DC and other zines as well. I mean, um, yeah, Alan Brennard, him and another creator had, had their own zine and I stumbled across some copies of that once and, and it was all the, and it was also filled with news because oh, cool. they either called up DC. I mean, it was all about, I mean, literally it was, Hey, a new looks coming to Green Lantern, or, yeah. you know, with artist Neil Adams rumored to be taking over. You know, it was like, <laughs> it was like, wow, this is just a random, you know, this was like a Xerox zine in 1969. So I think as fandom was building and there were these news fanzines out there and this desire for news, I think from the marketing standpoint, I think Marvel with Foom and DC with um, Amazing World of DC Comics and DC also had a, a direct currents newsletter you could subscribe to. I think that maybe that came after um, Amazing World. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that was a little later. But yeah, it, it's an interesting sort of phenomenon uh, because it also gave a lot of junior editors a chance to develop their voices, both at DC and Marvel. Like at Marvel, it went through a few different editors. At DC, they had um, a bunch of people who were doing various things like letters, columns or whatever, and they called themselves the Junior Woodchucks. Yeah. And that included Paul Levitz, like you said, Carl Gafford, Michael Uslin, Alan Asherman, and, you know, 
those folks all went on to do lots of different things in the comics, obviously. I mean, we know Michael Uslan pretty well as a Batman movie producer. Gafford was a colorist for a long time. Alan Asherman was the DC librarian for many years. Was Tony Tallinn, was he one of those? Uh... He might have been. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of them. There's a guy named Guy H. Lillian, and I have no idea what happened to him other than every once in a while somebody will say, hey, it's Guy H. Lillian's birthday, but I don't think he stayed in comics. He's the he's the third, Guy H. Lillian the third. The third, he was the letter true. hack. Yes, also a big letter hack. That's how you used to get a job in comics. Yeah, that's true. So I'm reading, uh, I mentioned this earlier off mic, but I'll, I'll mention it now because it's kind of fun. But, you know, uh, I'm reading this terrific book from 2017 called Slugfest, which is about the rivalry between Marvel and DC over the years. And uh, I'm right up to the point where DC has just brought in some new editors in the late 60s, who in turn brought in new writers like Steve Skates, Denny O'Neill, Len Wein, and uh, Marv Wolfman, and a couple of those guys and a couple of other people talk about the fact that they kind of got recruited out of having written letters. Right. You know, and like enough enough letters that people paid attention to them. So, Foom uh, ran 22 issues, and it started out being edited for, I think, the first three issues by Jim Steranko, who came back in 1973 to do this thing after he'd left Marvel, I guess, and was doing probably the paperback covers part of his career. And I have a theory, which I will probably never get proven one way or another, but my theory is that he edited those issues to help like, prove that he could do a magazine because, of course, he went on to do media scene slash preview magazine, whatever it was called, for Absolutely. many years. Yeah, media scene, yeah. So anyway, this to me, this is like the pilot for that, for those first couple of issues, at least. I have most of the issues of Foom, but I haven't looked at them in a while, but they ran through Starango. I think Tony Isabella was next as an editor, Dave Kraft, and a lot of people pitched in here and there. And when Dave Kraft came in with issue 17 or so, um, that was the Stan Lee cover, they basically switched from two colors throughout the magazine, like usually it would be a red and blue, to like a full color cover and then black and white insides. So they kind of, like better paper on the cover. So, but these were magazine sized. And like I said, quarterly. And issue 17 was the big Foom issue. It was the big Defenders issue of Foom, by the way. Oh, can I tell my, can I tell my Foom story, by the way? Sure. Because I actually have. It's not now when. I know, because I actually have a Foom story, and it's somewhat embarrassing, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Because I started, I um, subscribed to Foom, and the first issue I got was number nine. I had already seen, like, the ads in the Marvel books for a few months, and I was kind of like, you know, it was hard to tell what it was, especially because they made it mysterious at the beginning. It was They did a lot of ads that were like, Foom is coming, what is Foom kind of stuff, and then the membership kit that you got seemed a little corny to me so i didn't really have interest in that i only got interested when it was a magazine right so i started with issue nine which is fortuitous because i was a big jim starlin nut and that was the issue that had him his cover of captain marvel warlock and silver surfer i'm looking at it now yeah yeah it was great even though i spilled shampoo all over it on an airplane flight in a bag I had to get it. Eventually, I had to get a new copy. Anyway, so you'd subscribe and get your four issues, and then you'd have to, re, you know, resubscribe. And I got issue 
20 and then my subscription stopped and they didn't give me a chance to order. And I actually, we had a New York City, I guess, phone book or whatever in the house. And I called Marvel Comics and whoever answered the phone, I was like, did Foom get canceled? And they and the person said, it's it's got uh, one more issue or two more issues or something. And I was I, I got very upset and I was like, well, how am I supposed to get those issues if you don't offer me a chance to resubscribe? Oh, and because usually when you have a subscription and the book you're subscribed to gets canceled, they just switch over your subscription from, you know, Batman right, right. to Detective Comics or whatever. But with this, they didn't have anything to replace it, I guess. So I didn't yeah, get could have anything. Given you credit. They could have said, pick six, you know, we'll send you six issues of some other. Yeah, they could have done several things, I suppose, but they didn't do anything. And so anyway, I'm on the phone going, haranguing this person, even though I was like 14 or 15. Okay, you know, I finally was like, can you just send me issue 21? Because I thought that was the last issue. And they finally gave in and sent me it. And then I found out years later that there was an issue 22 as well. Which, by the way, is now like the most expensive or one of the most expensive issues because it's just a little scarce. It was the uh, Spider-Man cover media issue. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So there you go. My dumb story of Foom. Wow. Well, the uh, my, my I can tell my dumb Amazing World of DC Comics story then. Fantastic. I, I, I like this story. Yours has dignity, I'm sure. It, but it has a similar thing. It's about the end of the run because Amazing World of DC Comics clearly was copying Foom. It did start about a year later in July 74 was the first issue. And of course, it was a tribute to Carmen Infantino, the publisher <laughs> of DC. I remember those. What a coincidence. Yeah. Uh, they certainly knew what they were doing, <laughs> you know, but, it, but, you know, same kind of thing interview, you know, behind the scenes and interviews and, you know, because DC had the golden age stuff and stuff that they were sort of reprinting as, you know, as well, they had a lot of historical articles too. So it was, it was, it was, it was really cool, but I more of a DC fan, as I have always said at that time, got the subscription. I think had my, my grandmother used to have to write, if I wanted the subscription to something, I used to have to give my grandmother cash. So she'd write out the check for me. Uh-huh. Um, and she was very sweet to do that. And then, you know, it, it ran 17 issues until April, 1978. And what happened, I noticed at one point is my subscription seemed to stop. Right. Uh, it seems there was a bit of a break after like the 13th issue it was kind of, you know, it never kept quite the bi-monthly schedule that it was supposed to, it seemed. But on issue 13, 14, it's, they were advertising it in the mag, in the comics, and it didn't show up. Mm-hmm. Now, I realized later one of the problems may have been is I moved at this time, but I'm pretty sure I sent <laughs> them the I'm, I'm 90% sure I sent them the change of address, and it uh-huh. just didn't get filed properly. But the issues, but like the last three issues which were about the Justice League and Wonder Woman and the Justice Society hadn't hadn't shown up, even though I had paid for them. And and I was I was very distraught because I didn't know what to do. And again, as you said, the problem is they weren't available like on the newsstands. No. The only way to get them was by buying them. And it didn't and you had to get a subscription. They didn't really weren't offering single issues, I don't think. So I was I was kind of despondent and I went to my father, the lawyer, you know, who, you know, I think he was kind of where he, you know, um, 
I don't know if my father was. I'll say my father saw I was despondent and said, "Hey, kid, what's going on?" I'm not sure that's what happened, but, <laughs> <laughs> but somehow I other I wound up talking about this comic book related thing with my father, who comic books were the last thing he wanted to talk about, and I said, <laughs> "You know, I, I bought this magazine, I bought a subscription, and they haven't been filling the issues." He goes, well, maybe they stopped publishing it. Well, no, no, they're still advertising it. So I know it's still there, but I did pay and, you know, Nanny's got the check and et cetera. And he goes, well, um, uh, you know, here, do, do this. Give me all the facts, right? Write up something that just says, you know, when you paid, what the check number was, what the subscription, you know, how long the subscription was supposed to be for. Just give me all the information sure. and, um, and, I'll, and I'll see what I can do. And I say, okay. So he writes a letter on his legal letterhead as my attorney <laughs> to, to DC Comics going, you know, uh, saying, you know, we are highly disappointed in this, in the, in the, this is the kind of behavior that Superman himself would, would, would totally look down upon. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's fantastic. And he wrote this letter in legalese, and I'm sure they, I mean, I'm sure they appreciated it as a joke. I don't think it was really, you know, they took it as a threat, uh -huh. but it was like, my son has paid in good faith, you know, paid, paid, bought a subscription and you have not fulfilled your end of the contract. And, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and um, you know, we, you know, and again, you know, and then, like I said, that like final zinger, we expected from the company that, you know, that, that, that represents, you know, truth, justice in the American way, blah, blah, blah. Nice. And, uh, and I swear to God within like two weeks, a thick envelope shows up with all <laughs> issues. You know, I always imagine like Jack C. Harris or Bob Rosakis or somebody like was like given this and just said, just find these three magazines and put them in an envelope and send them to White Plains and just yeah, get his yeah. and his dad out of her hair. <laughs> and then and then the last issue showed up, you know, uh, as just part of the regular subscription and, and that was it. I don't even know if if they carried me over, but the the uh, the, the foom issue, this foom issue though. I think was my first, I think I did eventually get a subscription of Foom, and I think this was the, 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 first, issue, the first issue I got. Yeah. The Defenders one, just to bring nice. it all back. Very cool. So this Defenders issue has a great wraparound cover by George Perez and Joe Sinnott, and it's all, like, it's a grid of little boxes. So there's, like, you know, the Silver Surfer flying through space and a big close-up of the Hulk's snarling face and there's a great panel on the front of uh several of the bozoettes all in yes. like reds and pinks and all kind of just on top of each other sort of staring out at the reader yeah the coloring is very good every well except for a few really cool. I mean, a lot of them are kind of monochromatic which is kind of interesting yeah right dollar bills on the back cover loki who i mean when's the last time loki was in the defenders that issue you know eight or ten Avengers Defenders War, the Black Knight, same era. So he just threw in like everyone and anyone who ever touched on the Defenders. So, Isn't that Trish Star? Oh, Trish there? Star, yes, Trish Star. The Thing, Dormammu. But then right up to the present day, there's um, the Presence, yeah. you know, on the back cover there, which is cool. Ruby Thursday on the front. Our, fr our friend Jack Norris right next in, to her. In, in a thoughtful yellow pose i believe i believe he's contemplating whether or not to take that job with shield okay. <laughs> he looks like hmm, should i shouldn't i I, don't I, know. I thought he was thinking about whether he wanted to tell valkyrie that he was married to her her body i'm married to your body baby 
<laughs> that's that does not sound good. No, yeah. it doesn't. Fine. Yeah, and, no, and some of them are like interesting designs, like super close-ups of like yellow jacket, which so like yes. if you're not, it's almost like a puzzle to go, oh, that's yellow jacket. I mean, the color yeah. kind of gives the indication that you're close-up of Zemnu on the back. I mean, it, it's like, oh, it's Moon Knight. At first I thought, actually, is it Moon Knight or the red? That's Moon Knight. That's not the Red Raja, right? I mean, it's... Red Raja's on the front cover. Oh, that's right. That's right. So oh, there he is. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that is Moon Knight with the, with the hood on. But there's one character i mean there's a, in terms of villains and there's arthur nagy all the headmen are here arthur nagy yes. down at the bottom yeah shandu clea not actually a defender but you know um but uh, yeah close enough for jazz right? there's a few friends and civilians <laughs> i mean so there's trish that's and true Dollar Bill, jack yeah, you're right so the supporting cast is there like i said i think it includes every hero who's who's sort of participated in the defenders i would say um probably i mean hawkeye's here for heaven's sakes you know yeah daredevil who really was i guess was that you know that korvac issue um the per the the character that but i think there's one character who made two major appearances and it's a villain so obviously Mm -hmm. the villain's not everyone's included they haven't included every you know dumb wizard that they fought there's no no nameless no tapping tommy no tapping Don. No, if tapping Tommy was on here, I would have been like, uh-huh. "Oh, I love George Perez even more than I already do." Uh, but yes. but Nebulon, I mean, represented by the bozos. Oh but, yeah. But it is it is interesting that that Nebulon is in here. You know, I see like, okay, you're not going to do the Wrecking Crew, or you're not going to do the Bad ne- Noon. Nebulon's a bit of an oversight, I would think. But I wonder, just speculation. You know, on the back cover, there's space for four boxes that are taken up by the mailer space. Interesting. Could there be a version of this art wow, with could that? We, could we peel this back? <laughs> I wish. Okay, totally unrelated, but we've been talking about Michael Golden, so it is related. Okay. Because I've heard different theories, and I don't know which is true. There's Avengers Annual 10, right? Yes. And it's, you know, and it's Love Al Milgram, but it's like a horrible cover that's like some weird bad version of a DC 1960s, you know, reprint cover with like, here's all the different stories that are going on in this issue. When in fact, it's the first appearance of rogue and it's a beautiful story inside drawn by Michael Golden. Right now, you know, in modern times, people have posted, I mean, it's an actual piece of art by Michael Golden that shows this amazing cover of like rogue standing over, you know, like, you know, uh, you know uh-huh. the Avengers strewn about, and people have presented it as either the actual original cover that may not have worked because they had to put like some sweepstakes banner on the top, right? And also because it was also one of those she was crushing the logo, and it might have been Shooter or somebody who didn't want to do logo crushing at that time, um, or. But I've also heard people say, oh, no, 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 that's simply a recreation. That's simply something he did later because people wanted to see an Avengers 10 annual cover by Michael Golden. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have any insight into that. No, not really. But I think you're on the right track, certainly. I don't have anything to add, except I've always assumed and and believed that there was some problem with the original cover. You know, that really, the, the one that got published really felt like a last minute, substitution and you know not a particularly great or inspired one but it it did the you know it made up for whatever the original cover had missed 
Yeah, like I said, I think part of it was the, yeah, I mean, it does have that, like, you know, win a bike or Toys R Us spree or something, right? or, you know, banner. And I think it also, you know, and also it it, it didn't really focus on, I mean, I mean, the other thing, and the simplest version could also be, it also didn't have a lot of Avengers. I mean, the Avengers were all knocked out, you know, which is a standard type of thing, but it was showing a new character. It wasn't like showing Dr. Doom standing around the Fantastic Four or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've I've never, but doing just the internet research, I've just seen people describe that. But you've seen that 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 Michael Golden piece of art. I, I believe I've seen it. Okay. I don't particularly remember it right now. Well, this, we're just I'm just giving you notes for next week. I guess so. I'm gonna have to look at it. Now. <laughs> You'll look it up and we'll talk. Yeah. Okay. On to yeah. the defenders. Yeah, we didn't bother to mention folks earlier, but yes, we're skipping the notes this week on this episode because it's um, not really related to the main you know, Defenders comic series. It's it's a side episode in a way. So this, the issue starts with an editorial called D-Dude, D-Foom, and Defenders. And <laughs> so silly. And uh, yeah, Dave Kraft's the editor. Jim Salkrup, my first boss in comics, is listed as Power Behind the Throne. You know, there's a, there's a whole list of people who worked on here, so many of whom I, I met or known and some I definitely have heard of, but I don't really know much about them. The masthead is great, though. If you actually read through it, it's, I mean, he's it having is. a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, and it's also, I find it always fascinating to look at, like, well, who was working at a company at that time. Like Scott Edelman, who I go back and forth with on Twitter occasionally, and I follow him on Twitter and other social media. He has mentioned that... Dave Kraft kept giving him weird nicknames. So here he's listed as Scott Edelmanimal. Ad- <laughs> <laughs> the show must have just uh, debuted. Oh, yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, and then Ziggy Stardust is credited as the Minister of Infumation. <laughs> I, know, it's like, I don't know who that is. I, you know, I have no idea who that's supposed to be. Arguably, it might, I mean, again, it may be just that they're really, I mean, it was, you know, editors, you know, submitting you know, their own, own tidbits. Yeah. Well, somebody probably um, put them together. Or, or Roger Stern is listed just as Sterno. <laughs> and Patty Cockrum is just Patty. Yeah. Marie Severin is Foom Fatale, which I really do. Dig Fabulous. That. Cool. Yes. Uh-huh. Also, I swear, I know the name Warren Starob, but I cannot remember who he is. Oh, well. Yes, and I feel like he might have been in the letters. He might be a letter page writer, too. Oh, maybe. He might be one of those guys who kind of came through that way, because I feel like we've come across that name since we've been doing this. However, his last name is an anagram for robots. <laughs> so think about it. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, let's see. So this, what are Thank the cool... comic books for turning everything into... Anagrams and backwards and forwards words, yeah, definitely. One of the coolest things about this editorial is the fact that it has a sort of a what do they call a chorus line, I guess, of um, the defenders all doing like their high kick dancing kind of thing, like the Rockettes, drawn by John Romita Jr. in nineteen seventy seven. Oh, it's very cool, and you know it's got little gags in it like. Some men are sort of floating and not like on the ground, <laughs> and 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 his and his wings are wiggling. His wings, his, are wiggling. yes, yes. The Hulk's out of step with everybody else. I remember this turning up in an actual comic book at some point, but they only used 
everybody from the Hulk on over to the right, because left to right, it's Doctor Strange, Clea, Submariner, Hellcat, Nighthawk, Red Guardian, Hulk, Valkyrie, Moon Knight, Silver Surfer. And you can see how, like, the way Hulk's hand is, like, in front of Red Guardian's head, that, that they could just remove her and all the ones to the outside, and you'd still have... Have a little, have a nice little illo, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, man, and it's this also is... not le it's less specifically the defenders, too, because you have the surfer and Moon Knight in there. Uh huh. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, Ramita, Johnny Ramita Jr. just getting started in his career. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, anyway, this is a fun editorial where he talks about the defenders and how he got involved in the defenders and what's in this issue and stuff. And it is vigorous writing, robust writing. You know what I mean? It's like, um, he's talking about how he took over writing the defenders from Steve Gerber and how, um, it's always difficult to figure out what's happening next. And then he writes, unpredictability is the operating word, sheer spontaneity and a dash of audacity. Yeah. So, I don't think there's a huge amount to say about this editorial, but it is fun. Yeah, and also the romance gave way to reality. Mm, yeah. Well, one of the things, I mean, you know, just coming back to some of the things we've talked about, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, this section, this episode is sort of a notes episode because we're going to be talking, it'll throw us back to some of the other past issues. True. And it's interesting, he talks about dialoguing on a plane, issue Defenders 44, where he had to dialogue on a plane and this is like before you had like airplane phones and all sorts of things. The, the origin of the red Raja, which, you know, I think yes. we were talking about it back then it was understood or it showed up in one, one of his other introductions to a masterworks or something. They were left with no explanation from Jerry Conway, how Dr. Strange became the red Raja. Oh yeah. So they kind of had to piece that all together. Because uh, there was like no written plot, so it was sort of like, like okay, we'll just come up with it. Yes, and I also like how he describes how he's writing this editorial in a restaurant, the Green Kitchen, <laughs> eating pastrami and baked beans while he's writing. I didn't remember there. Be I didn't remember there being a Nathan's ever up at at uh, at Madison. Nathan's Fifty Ninth. It says Nathan's Hot Dog Emporium on Fifty Ninth and Madison is where he used to go to dialogue and i'm like oh yeah i i remember the one in times square but i don't i did not uh no i don't know but again I, well i was working there i was working around that area in that was a few years later 80s, when you were there but it could have been closed by then yeah exactly stuff comes and goes in new york so quickly as we all know <laughs> have you seen times square recently yeah really <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in here that we don't really need to touch on because it's not really about the um, Defenders particularly, but I am amused by in the Mighty Marvel mini items that's right after this editorial, how much stuff is in here that's sort of self-promoting Dave Kraft. There's a note for, about how, which you guys, that Neil Pert, drummer and songwriter for Rush, was quoted in Circus Magazine talking about how much he liked the Defenders which I thought was hilarious. Oh, yeah. And he says, uh, that tiny little line in the comic book when he got 
they got credited for like helping to inspire the story. That tiny little line in the comic book meant more to us than a whole issue of Rolling Stone. <laughs> and then there's a whole thing about they actually touch on some storylines here and elsewhere in the issue that are coming up later in um, this issue and, and in the Defenders rather. Yeah, yeah. I double checked the timeline, and yeah, we're this. This is we're kind of oh, doing this boom at the time that the last issue of Defenders came out, which is pretty accurate. Yeah, I forgot to mention this. This issue came out September nineteen seventy seven, so it's like concurrent with issue, I think four fifty or so. But some of the stuff they're talking about, as though we should know what it is, doesn't come up for a few more issues. So there's a two-thirds page article here in Mighty Marvel Mini Items about Agent of Fortune and how Ed Hannigan designed this costume and even made a cosplay version of it himself so he could do some photography and things. And of course, this is um, the upcoming Defenders Devil Slayer storyline, still a few issues off, in which they bring over a character that Dave Craft created for Atlas Comics, Demon Slayer. Well, maybe I'm getting that backwards, but it's like Demon Hunter and Devil Slayer. Yeah, I think Demon that's Demon Hunter, it. I think, was the Atlas comic. You're right, you're right. But yeah, the, these pictures are fairly cool of Ed Hannigan in his crazy costume. Then a couple of pages later, I, I do have to mention, because it's so cool, there's a page of Jack Kirby pencils from the Silver Surfer graphic novel that they published you know, um, with Simon Schuster in 77. And it was written or scripted by Stan Lee and drawn by Jack Kirby and inked by Joe Sinnott. Really, all three of them, their last big uh, collaboration. And it's just a really nice page of the Silver Surfer and not Shala Ball, a different female lead who's in this character, in this uh, book with him. It's kind of floating through the sky and things. It's, it's lovely. Yeah, isn't she orangey in the book? She is, and I wish I could remember her name, but I don't. It's been a while since I've read that book. Although I do still have my original copy from that time. I don't have my original, but I do. Be I believe I have a. Um, I've grabbed a couple. It's one of those things. Like I think my uh, fireside books. Yeah. I, yeah, I slowly but surely tried to like recreate my uh, my my fireside collections. Ooh, nice! I would love to have more of those. You know, we're we're, we're up, I have a couple. Yeah. I know I have a soft cover of the Silver Surfer, and I know there's a hard cover, but I've not. I don't. Have yeah, that's it. harder, I think, to uh, to find. The interesting thing about this also is that it's got a little note. the The copy that's on the art is written is written, or probably a, an interview with with Jack Kirby. Yes. Um, and you know they're making him. It's it's funny to think because Stan Lee is the the salesman of of of, of Marvel at this point, but that they. You know, here Jack is, you know, left for DC, back at Marvel now, doing this big project, which was probably one of the things that helped them come back to, you know, this is, I presume, as a book project, this probably was a lot more money um, and a lot more time given than um, the the tip, you know, than if he was doing three issues of a Silver Surfer comic or something. Yeah. And it says, oh, no, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I, I have not checked this myself, but I have read that this particular thing, just because it went through Fireside Books and so and Simon and Schuster, the copyright is shared between Stan and Jack somehow and Marvel. So he actually they actually had a a piece of the ownership of it, which is weird. And I think that might be why they've never reprinted the thing. 
and I was going to say, and isn't that, isn't that the crazy thing, right? Is that, yeah. you know, um, not to bash the comics industry <laughs> upon which we make our living, but seriously, I, I, every time this comes up, whether it's with like the Hawkeye credits and compensation or whatever, yep. I, I, I'm always going, but you know, when people say the creator should have stood up and made a better deal and blah, blah, blah. And if they just stood fast <laughs> and made that better deal for royalties, well, I mean, they're very, I'm not going to name the names because the creators themselves are vocal about when this happens, but there are people who actually fought and got special compensation deals. And what happens to them, if you look around, those are the projects that never get adapted. That's, because, uh, yeah. Because, because some, when it, or, or, or collected or reprinted because it goes to a bean counter who goes, oh, well, you know, when we run the projection on this, we have to pay that writer and that artist you know, 2% of every dollar, and we don't want to do that. Right. And by going back to that book I'm reading now, Slugfest, um, just at the end of the 1960s, where writers like Arnold Drake and Bob Haney were really pushing hard, or, or Drake in particular, pushing really hard to get better deals for creative talent at Marvel and DC. And, you know, they ended up getting fired over it. Right. So, you know, it's a tough business, and a lot of people break in very young and sort of are, you know, thrilled, just so thrilled to be writing and working in comics that they don't really consider how they might be treated better at that point. Yeah, no, it, it, anyway, but yeah, so, okay. So the copyright thing I think is probably what I was, what I was thinking of, but yeah. what's interesting in terms of the other issues that get addressed between Stan and Jack is you know, he says, this is a, a cooperative effort between Stan Lee and myself. Yes. We're working as we've always worked. Not saying <laughs> what that is, but it's well, very telling. Yeah, It's going to be the Silver Surfer in depth because it's a serious book. It's a comic as comics should be. It's the human side of the surfer explored inside and out. I've always enjoyed working with Stan. We've been a successful team. In the collaboration, something good comes out. It's the chemistry of a good team. So, you know, I mean, obviously, you you know, Jack was always going to be that guy who he was never going to bite the hand that feeds him when they were feeding him. Um, but I mean, but, it, you know, so it was, but it's it, it, but it is interesting that they I think it kind of says too how much even that probably was a book that Jack Kirby took home and drew 90 pages and then Stan scripted it. Yeah, I'm, I would not be at all surprised. So in the back of this com in the back of this magazine, there's a section called Department of Information, where each editor from Marvel pretty much gets to say what's happening in their books. And there's a you know Jack Kirby's a writer editor at Marvel at the time, so he talks about what's going on in um, whatever it was the Eternals or what have you. And it really reads like you know this this is just an excerpt from that, but they put it in its own special little section. I, oh, that's a good yeah well it's a bigger yeah. project i mean they have more into it and also oh yeah surfer is it is a defender <laughs> well they don't really mention that here but that's a good point machine man not a defender not a defender Devil by the way not a defender they call it oh you know what uh, interestingly in the jack kirby section they don't call it devil dinosaur they call it like the dinosaurs or something so they oh, really hadn't named the book yet well, wasn't it also a, a wasn't it a, another possible 
sort of 2001 spinoff? No. Moon Boy wasn't possibly like one of the... I mean, it feels like it could have been, but it isn't. I just read those 2001s a couple of years ago, and there's really, there's no connection to Devil Dinosaur or Moon Boy. So the next article, which is the first real big article, is Defenders Dialogues, Superlative Scripters Speak. This is great. They talked to Roy Thomas, Steve Englehart, Len Wein, Steve Gerber, and Dave Kraft, and each of them sort of talks about what it was like writing Defenders and why they liked it or didn't like it or whatever. And uh, it's a lot of fun. And there's pictures of each of the writers, including our beloved Len Wein uh, in particular. In a Captain America shirt. So we start with Roy Thomas, who sort of talks about where... Well, first of all, can I just say something? Oh, yeah, I feel of like we, we have to protect our interests here. And <laughs> I'm kind of upset that these guys somehow heard our podcasts and then went back in time and printed all this stuff. Right? Because it's all, it's all eerily familiar. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> uh, it starts with Roy Thomas, who sort of talks about how a magazine that would use Hulk in a group. And so Roy sort of developed this idea of, you know, okay, Hulk, Submariner, and Silver Surfer together. And then Stan said, well, not Silver Surfer. So they ended up with Dr. Strange in the group. The thing I liked about the Roy section in particular, though, was that he says, I especially enjoyed doing the three Defenders issues of Marvel Feature, particularly because these issues had longer lead stories. But uh, to me, it, I thought, those are the only ones you wrote. <laughs> you know it's like i especially enjoy doing all the things i did yeah this well is, i think probably funny. but i think he saw he i think he saw the development of you know the defenders through you know the through the submariner stories and yes yeah he wrote all that stuff before you know the pre officially... as you, you you dubbed them that's right yes that's true and also he was editing the defenders for a while, I think, when Anglehart was writing it. So you know, it's fair. It just uh, sounds a little funny when I read it here. But his section is a little briefer than the other ones. And then um, Steve Anglehart talks about how well he was writing all these. You know, they started off giving him the Beast and the Ringo Kid and the Defenders when he was a fledgling writer. Ringo Kid obviously did not last long. And um, how he was writing the Avengers the Defenders both at the same time. And he was writing Doctor Strange, but he really hadn't, didn't get a, a full grip on what Doctor Strange really could be till many years later. And he decided to, you know, he couldn't really split his time between two big teams like that. So he stuck to it, decided to stick with the Avengers and let that go. What I thought was interesting is how he says, that he didn't feel he was nailing the Avengers yet. Like he felt he was doing a good job with Defenders. Uh -huh. <laughs> but that, that, that his early Avengers weren't really coming together, which, and, and they, and, and it, and then he says, because Roy had done such a good job. And it is interesting. Cause I always feel like that first couple years he was doing on Avengers felt very much like yeah. him trying to do the Roy Thomas thing until he, you know, with, oh, and the origin of the vision, and I'm going to go back to this, and I'm going to go back to that. Um, and, and it wasn't until he did, like, Squadron, uh, Sinister, and or Supreme, or whatever they were, uh, oh, and, you know, the uh -huh. whole Roxxon and whole Kang thing, 
that it was like, oh, that became his big, you know. I hear you. I hear you, but I think you're you're conflating a couple of different pieces of Avengers because it was like, I really remember well, 129 is the first Kang story. And then it it goes into the, the origin of the vision, the whole Celestial Madonna thing. And then um, the rocks on oil and serpent squadron. Okay, so you're right. So it's this. So then, which so then, which are the issues that he feels he's not he's not getting it right? I wonder. Well, I mean, he started writing the Avengers with like issue 105. Oh, that early? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, I'm seeing it. Like 120 is his. Oh, that he had the Zodiac in 120. Yes, fun stuff, but it's not like real. That's really where it starts. Even even there, starts breaking out because Mantis becomes a more important character, right? And he creates Mantis in one twelve. Yeah, but she's not that interesting until you find out, like, oh, her dad's right, Libra right. in the Zodiac, and she's you know got this Vietnamese background and everything. Right. So he was yeah he was writing Avengers one the the one teens is the the crossover with with Defenders yeah and then. Okay, so now I now I and then he left with that. Okay, so this is so this is super early stuff in 1973. He's talking about more. Yeah, exactly. Got it. I mean, I'm always amazed that they just throw these young young writers on, like Jerry Conway writing Spider Man when he's 18 or 19, or uh, you know Steve Englehart writing the Avengers. So you know, so young and stuff, and it's like, yeah, you know, I don't know if it's that they just really wanted new voices on the books or they just didn't feel like it mattered that much ultimately who wrote them. You know, that's, that's the great question of, of, of the, of the ages. I mean, I think they probably felt it mattered, but I think yeah. what was the talent pool, you know, it was either like, well, yeah, you know, pulling in, I mean, and look, you know, that guardians of the galaxy, I love Arnold Drake, you know, a visionary in so many ways, but right. right. Isn't he the one who wrote that? Um, yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy, that first issue. Yes, it's it's kind of a mess, you know. It, 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 I think, I think they may have tried bringing in some of those folks. Yeah, right. You know, um, Gardner Fox came in and wrote a few things here and there. And really, the only senior writer they had was Roy Thomas, and he can't write. He couldn't write everything, you know. And he was, and he was a kid. I mean, when he started in the six in the mid sixties. Yes. Well, certainly. And, I mean, he was like, I mean, he was, I mean, maybe he's in his 20s when he gets, I mean, he's maybe early 30s or something at most when he's editor-in-chief, late yeah. 20s. Right. But he knows, but he's, one of those guys is he knows what the boss wants. I mean, again, my short story, well, yeah. since we mentioned Jim Steranko and Media Scene, my boss at Starlog was Dave McDonald, who worked for Jim Steranko at, at Media Scene before coming to New York for Starlog. Ah. And like my first day on the job as an editorial assistant, Dave hands me a stack of photos to write captions for because they had a there was some you know special edition you know like you know uh, you know double size reprint magazine, but we were doing an extra feature of you know, the women of science fiction, and the women of science fiction was always just an excuse to run another picture of you know Carrie Fisher in the in the bikini. Right? <laughs> yes. So, you know, but it was like, so, so he wanted to put in another page or two of that since there was extra pages in this magazine. So we were going from three to five and he gave me six pictures. He gave, he gave me the original pictures with the captions that he wrote and gave me this. And then I sat down, I read all of his captions and then I, and I go, okay, that's the style he wants. And I wrote captions and I turned them back. And like, it was, I was very proud of the, of the work. And he was like, 
And he said something to me like, who told you to do this? I go, to do what? I go, he goes, you're, this is great. You know, he was very, you know, he's a great boss. And he was like, this is, you know, this is, you did a great job. This sounds like our house style and what I'm trying to do, blah, 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 that I really, you know, and he was like, I really appreciate it. And I said, well, you gave me those things. I thought that's what, you know, so the little puns and the little word plays and trying to work, you know, the idea was always like working the title into like a sentence, you know, not just going, oh, yeah. this picture's from Night of the Comet. It would be, you know, uh, you know, Kelly wasn't prepared for the Night of the Comet, but when it came, nah. she, you know, pulled out a machine gun and fought all the zombies, you know, or whatever. You know, <laughs> you know. uh-huh. uh, and you, you just work that stuff in. And he was just like, oh, you know, that, that, yeah. but why do I bring that up? Because I feel like that's what Roy Thomas did. Roy Thomas didn't yeah. go, oh, I get to write Marvel comics too, so I'm going to reinvent them. He expanded on, you know, uh, and I put, I think he put a different story sense on it uh, that, that, that was also additional to the, to the Marvel universe. But, um, but I think he did what the job called for. And I think one of the yeah. things we've noticed with Engelhart, with Gerber, it is, is, it is interesting that when these younger guys came in, even though they were younger guys, they still had this allegiance to the 10 years of Marvel that preceded them and that they mined that, those stories and mined right. that history and realized like that was part of, they didn't, while well, they came in and did new ideas and did things in new ways and introduced a lot of new characters, they were also like, but you know, no reason not to bring back Zemnu, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so our next writer in this group is Len Wein, who says he doesn't have a lot to say about it, and then he says a bunch of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, I thought this was interesting. We never put this together, that um, the Submariner was written out of the Defenders specifically because they were launching Supervillain Team Up, and they didn't want, you know, Submariner in too many books. Too many teams. Yeah. So that was uh, that was interesting. And then... Roy uh, apparently Roy Thomas suggested to Len to just you know use whoever you want in this for an issue or two and then let him go. So they had, uh, as he says, musical superheroes with Professor X, Son of Satan, Daredevil all showing up occasionally, you know, which is great. Uh, you know, that started a real tradition in the Defenders. Yeah, and then the the uh, concept of the. Writing Academy headquarters on the Nassau Suffolk County line on Long Island. <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess that's where he grew up, Len. No, I thought he was like Queens or Brooklyn or something. Well, maybe I don't know. But well, maybe um, that is maybe. I mean, yeah, Suffolk. That's Long Island. I mean, right? Who knows? It was just one of those uh, interesting detail. Yeah. Oh, and then this crazy note at the end here, which is that Len left the Defenders. Because he was talking to Steve Gerber, who was tired of writing Daredevil, and Len was like, "Well, I'll write Daredevil," and Gerber was like, "Great, I'll write uh, Defenders." So they swapped, <laughs> and then he only stuck on Defenders for he says one, half of an issue, and then he yeah, left. Yeah, yeah, no, he never, yeah, he never became the regular Defenders writer. But I think again, I think it was the next upheaval which pushed him to. Well, I have to look at the exact timing of it, but no, it wouldn't right. have been Spider Man yet. No, but. I don't know. He probably got something like, you, you know, we have to move you here. And then after Gerber wrote Defenders, Tony Isabella wrote a bunch of issues and then Marvel Wolfman. So, you know. Oh, of Daredevil. Of Daredevil, yes. Yeah, yeah. Became, yeah I started reading Daredevil when it was the, 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 the Marv Wolfman era. Right. The, what's interesting about this, though, from a character point of view, because it is so much how 
uh, Len would approach uh, plot situations. Oh yeah. Is, you know, even though the note was to make it a non-team, he wound up focusing more on those four characters of Hulk, Valkyrie, Nighthawk, and Doctor Strange. And why he created the writing Academy was to, to make it a kind of hangout for friends. I mean, yes. he thought that was really the best way to keep the Hulk around because the Hulk felt these people ex accepted him. Yeah. And I mean, we've talked about that, but you know, like I just looked at it as, oh, somebody who wants the Hulk not to be, you know, a cranky monster all the time, but to actually be kind of happy. Um, but but it was a specific strategy to kind of give these characters a reason to hang out together. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. And it's, uh, you know, it gave his his version of the team its own really specific uh, flavor. Oh, and you know what? You know what yeah. it looks like, too? Uh, you know what? I think it's also because he had started, he probably also um, had started writing the Hulk. He said he took the Defenders to write the Hulk, but then he was assigned the Hulk. So that's probably also why he didn't pick up Daredevil. Maybe. Uh -huh. mm. Yeah, yeah. Right, and then Steve Gerber comes in and says, immediately, I remember exactly how I came to write the Defenders. <laughs> Len Wein wanted to do Daredevil, which I'd been scripting for about two years, and I thought it was time for a change. It was pretty funny. Yeah, have you read the, Dare the Steve Gerber Daredevils? Not really. Yeah, I feel like I've read them in passing, you know, or seen, but I've never, I mean, I never imagined, again, based in, also like based on this interview or this, this, this memoir here, you know, uh -huh. it always struck me that there might be some interesting stuff in them. I know he used like, did he use Angar or I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Wonder? Yeah. I mean, I think it was sort of a transitional moment. I'm going to guess for Gerber in that he was getting away from some of his earlier sort of more straightforward superhero stuff, but hadn't quite yet graduated to the full on weirdness of the defenders. Right. So yes, there's Angar and, moon dragon and um some other you know some other stuff like that but I, I don't really know enough about it to tell you you know much oh yeah that's funny to think too oh was he working with star i mean that, that and the, well, that yeah, was just a couple of issues yeah but still it's just weird that, that yeah moon dragon would kind of you know pop up in daredevil yeah i don't remember the exact reason now i feel like i want to read those issues uh, so Oh, and then he talks He talks about the differences between the Avengers and Defenders and how with the Avengers, they had all these superheroes, like exclusively superheroes, and everything was sort of what was going on between those characters, whereas they, you know, the Defenders, they brought in like Jack Norris and Trish Starr, who were really supporting characters for members of the Defenders. And um, apparently, he says, some people objected to him using characters like that. But... You know, especially when you're dealing with a character like Valkyrie, who has no background, having someone, you know, who knows something about her makes sense. Right. Yeah. Well, because it's taking away. I mean, I'm sure editorially and marketing wise, it's somebody thinking, oh, every time every character who's not in a costume is taking away time from costume people. <laughs> Theoretically, an interesting point of view. I'm not sure it's so valid because, you know, there's always going to be supporting characters in a comic. And I thought. The funniest thing here was what he says is his funniest memory of scripting a series was the Elar story from Giant Size Defenders. Oh God, yeah, five, I guess it was, or I think it was five, where he sort of co-plotted it with Jerry Conway and thought 
it was a mess, but they were sort of stuck with it because Don Heck had already started drawing it and they had to like make it make sense. So they started, you know, inserting new pages along the way to kind of explain things and, you know, well, we weren't wrong when we said that was a mess of a story. <laughs> Even that's they said, what I'm saying. You know, it's like this, this, this part of reading this issue was sort of going, hey, you were, you were right. The whole thing was all just complete absurd bull, he says. And it made me wonder if the, was, if the Guardians of the Galaxy were even part of the original plot. <laughs> yeah, really. That's a good question. We had a character that was performing a completely senseless act and then let the mystery stretch and develop itself after that. It was very silly. Yeah. But he also says how much he had fun he had developing the pasts of Valkyrie and Nighthawk, and you can really get that sense reading those books, reading those issues. Uh, then the last part of this particular article is uh, Dave Kraft talking about what he's been working on with the Defenders and how he started with Ro Roger Slifer, but Roger Slifer got busy, so he had to pick it up himself and how much fun it is to work with Keith Giffen. And then he starts talking about stuff that hasn't really happened yet, like Gemini, Sergei, Sergei's just barely happening at this point. Dollar Bill, new character. And Devil Slayer, we haven't seen him yet. So <laughs> it, it's just funny that he keeps talking about characters we haven't seen yet. Well, he seems to be in his mind working ahead. Of I course. mean, you know, possibly because maybe him and Keith had talked out a lot of stuff and, you know, and now you know Keith isn't there. Yeah. But yeah, kind of because it kind of also makes you think that some of the things that maybe the story we're in, well, again, it got the the it got split between two issues, all those other things that happened, it makes you feel that maybe what we're getting into is kind of you know been extended for him to kind of catch up with some of his big grandiose plans. Right. Like he I don't think he wants Carmen Infantino drawing Agents of Fortune. That's just my Yes. I think you're probably right. I think, although truthfully, these guys were thrilled to have Infantino drawing for Marvel, you know, because he was could really tell a story, was super reliable, whatever. But it's got to be a little more collaborative when you're working with like Keith Giffen or Ed Hannigan, who are like uh, peers, and not like you know the older guys who are just like probably more like you know tell me what the story is and I'll draw it. Right. So. Anyway, that's that big article, and that's pretty much the biggest thing in the issue. There's another Defenders article called The Defenders Saga by Ralph Macchio, not yet on the assist editor staff, or maybe he's an assistant. And it's really just his point of view. I'm not going to go into too much detail on this article because it's his point of view of basically issue by issue or story by story what was happening in the Defenders and how he liked it or didn't like it. It's very subjective. Who, yeah, um, who wants to listen to that? I know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but <laughs> um, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's just not that interesting, I thought. But, but what's interesting is some of the uh, other bits and pieces in here because they run three pages from Defenders 53 by Keith Giffen that didn't get used that got replaced by Mike Golden pages and those are fabulous I don't, I don't know why they didn't use them frankly they're gorgeous well yeah but then, well, also there's also the plot to that issue that we mm -hmm. just did last week right in there and it's very reduced I mean I, I sort of and, and I'm old but I wanted to kind of like <laughs> do a side by side comparison because what I kind oh, of feel yeah. like 
is they had to break it down between two issues. So I think, and it looks like some of the stuff, even like this issue, this, this, this first page that they show of Giffen's of them walking through, it is beautiful, but it's also, I mean, I don't know what exposition, it's, it, it looks beautiful, but there's really not a lot of place to put any story. I don't know. I, th I can see how you could do it, I think. Well, no, no, no. I'm, I'm saying, but you're just looking at objects. I mean, I guess it would be captions going, explaining what's going to happen or right. something, which yeah, that yeah. issue was a lot of anyway. But it, 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 it's, you know, and I guess there'd be some dialogue of them walking in and going, oh, what are we, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But for whatever reason, I think, remember, because there are those panels that all pages that also have like 12 panels and such on them. I think yeah. they were trying to compress some things. Well, really interestingly, on the what is this fifth and sixth page of this article, they run the two unused pencils of Giffen by Giffen, pencil pages by Giffen, next to the used pages by Mike Golden. Right. So you can compare them, and they are pretty different. And there's a ton of dialogue on those pages, which I hadn't really considered before on the finished pages. It's just it's just an interesting comparison, I think. Yeah, and like I said, I don't think, and somehow that plot that that is written as an eighteen-page plot got compressed into twelve pages or something. Right. Yeah, it, it's pretty fascinating. I thought that, like, to me, that was the most interesting thing about this. Frankly, nothing wrong with the article, but it's just sort of a, and then this happened, and then this happened, kind of stuff, um, which you know, leave that to me. <laughs> Come on, Ralph. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, you know, but again, it kind of shows that even back then the Defenders was seen a certain way because I think Ralph's anal overall analysis is very, you know, similar and parallel to what we said about, you know, the highs and lows of the Gerber and what then David Kraft does with Scorpio and what kind of, you know, you know, uh, is not as, you know, impressive. He kind of skates past the emissaries of evil pretty quickly as well. So, History agrees with us. <laughs> yeah, I mean that really. I think I think people have agreed that you know those issues just felt like quick. We got to get something in here. <laughs> um, yeah. Then there's a two-page spread here that has two pinups at the top. One by Salvi Sema from a very early issue, and then the two-page spread from Defenders Fifty by Giffen, where you know, they're, they're the team now, which is Hellcat, Valkyrie, Nighthawk, Hulk, and Moon Knight are all sort of racing away out of that, like, giant pile of rubble and broken machinery in the middle of the, toward the end of the Scorpio story, I mean. Yeah, no, and this was the one that in the comic, it doesn't line up properly, the two-page yeah. spread, so this is nice right. to see here. Oh, yeah. Actually, it looks better here a little bit. And then, like I said, there's a checklist that takes up most of this two-page spread of every issue, when it was on sale, or it just says the month and the year, and who wrote it, who wrote them, who drew them, what the titles were, blah blah blah. And it's and it's more, it has up to issue sixty. Oh, you're right. I didn't notice that before. For June seventy-eight, how is that possible? I guess it's just what was on the schedule. That's crazy. I didn't even notice that because. This is definitely the fall '77 issue. It's right on the cover. I know, and but did did they did it ship? Did the flume ship late? No, I mean because Mike's Amazing World of DC of uh, Mike's Amazing World of Comics 
also lists it with a uh, September on sale date or arrival date. But yeah, Defender of the Realm, Prince and the Presence, that's 52 and 53, what we just talked about. Then 54 is A Study in Survival. Wow. Now we're going to have to compare these to the actual issues and say, you know, look, they've even got the, this is crazy. They've even got issues 57, which is a fill-in by Chris Claremont and George Tusca. Well, I don't know. This is very baffling because that means they would have been working and planning eight months out, including, you know, assignments. Well, what about what's in the coming up? I mean, would the, I mean that last page. Uh, I mean, does that give any kind of? Uh... Well, we're gonna let's take a look. So, Department of Information. I did want to mention because they had a piece of penciling from uh, Defenders Fifty Eight of Doctor Strange. So, guess what? He's back, kids. <laughs> Doctor Strange fighting the Agent of Fortune, which is a, another character that they haven't introduced yet. And then, um, okay, in Department of Information, like I said before, there's different editors talking about their various books. Steve Gerber only talks about Howard the Duck. Archie Goodwin, listen to how many books he's doing. Avenger, uh, editing. Avengers, Captain Marvel, Daredevil, Defenders, Doctor Strange, Godzilla, Ghost Rider, Human Fly, Iron Man, Man from Atlantis, Marvel Team-Up, Master of Kung Fu, Ms. Marvel, Spectacular Spider-Man, X-Men, and Power Man, Iron Fist. That is a lot of books. Then there's a section for David Anthony Kraft, who's doing Boom, Marvel Calendar, Marvel Comic Super Special, and Spidey Super Stories. And he talks about Foom in general. They talk about the um, Beatles issue of um, Marvel Comic Super Special. Oh, yeah. And they show the Jim Starlin cover to the UFO issue of Marvel Super Special, which I like the cover, but I remember the issue. The story Was it like kind UFO of... Connection or something? Yes, you're right. Uh, I remember it being a fairly boring story sadly <laughs> although maybe if i reread it i'd love it i don't know no i think i think it was the cover is what was there to sell the magazine yeah i mean sorry this was a period where jim starlin was painting a lot of covers and it looked great hulk covers in particular but uh, some other stuff too yeah they're talking about stuff that's coming up in in 90, I'm like looking at like what mar wolfman talks about with the fantastic four breaking up and that was published and that was late because the picture they show is Fantastic Four 190, but that actually was 191, and 190 was a, was a fill-in issue. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to check back on this, because uh, when I come to Defenders in this Dave Craft section, he talks about Deathlock the Demolisher versus Lassie the Death Dog. I kind of don't think that happened. No. But they don't talk... I mean, they talk about the Devil Slayer issues of the Defender, originally scheduled as a two-parter, is now slated to be a three-part miniseries, like who remembers Scorpio and the Power Principle. And uh, Ed Hannigan and Ed Klaus Janssen doing great artwork. And Oh, that's right. The Cosmic... Sorry, I'm, it's the Cosmic Connection, according to this, from Marvel Preview number 13. Um, yeah, but I think, by, the, I think the cover says the UFO Connection. I think so, too. How it was drawn by Herb Trimpey and... Uh, Not Jim Starlin. <laughs> no, he only only the cover. That, that's like one of those sort of stylistic disconnects, you know, between the cover magazines. And I mean, having worked, you know, for Starlight, I mean, that the whole thing about, and it really seemed that the Marvel magazines became this at a certain point is because it was all in advances. It was advances and then credits. 
So if you told them, oh, we're going to send you something called the UFO connection, I mean, at that time, if that's what everybody was really into, you know, they probably got more orders on that, you know, maybe sales too, who knows, but it was, but it was, it, you know, if, if it was, it wasn't a great comic, so, but it was something that would look cool on the newsstands and they only yeah. need to sell it once. It's true. Life magazine or entertainment, like all, like magazines now. I mean, there are still like monthly and weekly magazines, a few. But how magazines? You you said you you told me you bought one um, of some pop culture thing recently. Uh, oh, that Life magazine um, special. You know, when you go to the grocery store now, it's like the, at the checkout. There's a lot of these Rolling Stone or Life magazine or Time magazine specials on different yeah. things. I just got one on peanuts. Um, which I'd been looking for recently. Yeah, and they're really books in a way. I mean, they're yeah. they're, they're, they're special editions or whatever, but they're not timely. But no, they, they but just they stay. the stands and they catch your attention. And if you're getting on a plane or you're taking a sick day and you just want something to read, sure, I can read 100 pages about Peanuts. Yes, I did. You know, they've done a lot with Marvel characters or Batman. Yep. I mean, they 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 try the Beatles. They try and hit every pop culture because again, they have all these photos and articles and things on file too. So they're repurposing a lot of. Yes, like in that videos. Peanuts thing, there were articles that were picked up from some you know some reasonably high profile blog or whatever. Oh, really. Oh yeah, yeah. So there was like a I can't remember who wrote it, but there was some. Was it Nat Gertler, perhaps? It was not Nat Gertler. Oh. Um, I know. I was disappointed. I was looking for Nat's name in there too. I, I, I like Nat, and I dig what he does. No, it was. It wasn't Dave Eggers, but it was someone on that kind of level. Of oh, life. I see what you're saying. Someone who's not necessarily a peanuts blogger. Someone who's a. a oh yeah, just a general. Someone who's a, a commentator and using their piece, their think pieces about the topic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 it, and again, especially if they're part of the same syndicates or you know whatever, you know, it it, it again, it's 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 just glossy fluff. <laughs> yes, but without glossy fluff, there would be no comic book industry. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. And here we have the um, the Jack Kirby section where he they just list Devil Dinosaur as dinosaurs. So they haven't quite named it yet. Anyway, that's kind of it for the issue. I mean, there's a couple more pages on, you know, Roy Thomas's books and um, Spotlight on Star Wars. It's going to be Star Wars. Three pages of a new Star Wars story are appearing along with three pages of Tarzan in every issue of Pizzazz, Marvel's new magazine. There it is. <laughs> Pizzazz. The other the art. Oh. Wait, sorry, I just want to say one more thing about that, because this is, uh, I guess, Roy Thomas talking or somebody, but in quotes, the art will be by Howie Chaikin and Tony DeZiniga. Oh, yeah, Howard, Howard would prefer not to be called Howie anymore, and who can blame him? He's a grown-up now. But, yeah, and it's right. I mean, and again, I don't know that he ever was, except that he was because Roy Thomas or whoever, you know, it was fun to call him, you know, it was the, the bullpen, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he hated it back in the seventies or not. But on the the the, the well, like the last te- well no the second to last page whatever there's like a typewritten page which I presume was sort of the last minute get stuff in and one of the the great things so it's David Kraft with the last minute news and he also says that if if you want to get the Howard the Duck issue of Foom you can send him a personal check because he bought a lot of extra copies of it. Oh, I didn't notice that. That's fantastic. 
<laughs> and I kind of wondered if that was some sort of like, you know, like in-house, it was sort of like, the, well, no, you can't say, it's a subscription magazine, so it's not like anybody could say, oh, it never sold, but maybe he would, but he was thinking, maybe speculating, going, yeah, but Howard the Duck is going to be this phenomenon, and is this phenomenon, so people are going to want just the Howard the Duck issue. Yeah. Also, boy, there's some interesting stuff in here. I really didn't pay attention to this page, but he mentions that you can um, get Don McGregor's new book, Dragon Flame and Other Bedtime Nightmares, now available in now in print and available for five dollars postpaid from Fictioneer Books Limited, which of course was his own company. Oh, Fictioneer, yeah, self-published. No, not Don McGregor's own company, Dave Kraft's own company. Oh, Dave Kraft. Oh, Dave, that was Dave. Oh, wow, yeah. This is this is like. I am, this is like the Walter Winchell last minute. <laughs> this is well, it's, this is it's, hey Dave, baby. Yeah, right. Send Dave money. <laughs> um, and they mentioned the pizzazz thing again. That Dave Kraft is writing this Tarzan stories, which I remember he wrote the Tarzan series after Roy Thomas left. But he's writing the the pages of Tarzan in pizzazz as well. And um, Len Wein, you know, talked about. Uh, wanting to take Hulk out of New York, which was a story we talked about, you know, when he, um, him, Torella, and that tied in with the that last Defender story. And then I think Glenn left shortly after that, but it says that he's working with, um, I mean, I remember this was a great story. I don't know if it, if it appeared in sequence or if it took a long time to complete, but the, the Feeding Billy, the uh, Len Wein, Jim Starlin, Hulk story, which I feel like became... Um, I don't know. It was just something that always stuck in my head. So I thought, what did it become? Uh, it's well, it's it's called. It's just a good. Was like a good self-contained short story. It's like a little horror story. Feeding Billy. I vaguely remember this. Yeah. Now I got a. Um, I think maybe I was looking. Oh, yeah, because I. Uh, it's issue two twenty-two. Okay. And I feel like he was off the Hulk by then. I think it came back. That's what I'm saying. I think it came back as like a. Um, oh yeah, there were a couple of. Issues right around that time that were one-offs. And again, that Starlin came in and drew something, you know. I feel like there was a couple of others right around that time. But anyway, yeah, so we've we pretty much mined everything there is to mine out of this Defenders issue of Foom, I believe. I would say that's so. Until the notes. Yeah, so there you go. Anything else to add before we call it quits and, you know, get ready for our new year? I keep hearing a lot of buzz in the defenders world, of, yeah. you know, you know the the hope that you know, with uh, that there will be some you know Doctor Strange, Hulk, you know, uh, perhaps Namor, Silver Surfer kind of thing, yeah. you know, that just seems to be you know you know, but there's a lot of postulating, a lot of people who are looking yeah. at like what to collect and invest in, or sort of uh, you know looking for those kind of formulas. Um, you know, and even if you did have Doctor Strange and Hulk pass uh, each other in a movie or something, does that necessarily mean it's a it, you know it becomes a an on screen appearance of the Defenders? But uh, um, interesting. I keep waiting for them to work get the Submariner into the Marvel universe on on screen somehow. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, well, I think there's. I mean, he was broken out, um, but I think he always got kind of bogged down. Pardon the pun, because he. Because his his association with the Marvel Universe is so entwined with the Fantastic Four. Yeah, um, well, that's true. Ooh, even though he be. wasn't necessarily included with those 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 Fox rights, 
uh, because right. he preceded the Fantastic Four. But I think that was, you know, that kind of meant like, you know, when Universal or whoever had the rights to do Samarin on their own, it's it's so separate. It's like it just become. I mean, just because then uh, Samariner on his own is is an Aquaman movie because uh-huh. you can't use any of it. But now you can do now that yes, that you can put Samariner in in a world with all the other heroes. It's much. I think it's much more interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, look, there's supposedly a Fantastic Four movie in the works. Maybe Samariner will have something to do with it. You never know. You never know. Yeah. Who do they get to play? I mean, it's still like, who do you get to play Namor? You know, because it's like right. they, they they got they got the guy for Namor for Aquaman. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, look, it's not like Jason Momoa has bears much as resemblance to Aquaman. No, I think. Well, that's what I'm saying. He looks like Namor. He looks. Yeah. Well. Okay. So then you need, need a, <laughs> gonna, a so clean cut blonde guy. So they're going to get looks... Matt Damon to play Namor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. Well, you've been listening to Defenders Dialogue with Carr and Adam. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you had fun. And uh, we will be back to our regular scheduled coverage of Defenders issues uh, with our next episode, number 29, real soon. Until then, Defenders Defenders Dissemble. Please subscribe, leave us a review, and tell your friends, tell your comics fans who are friends, tell your friends who are comics fans. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye, everybody. Swinging real, swinging shield, swinging superhero. They're the latest, they're the greatest, ultimatest superhero.